Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now, here's our associate pastor to families, Tony Richmond. Well, good morning, church family. Let's open again to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. Last week, we studied the first part of Jesus' prayer here in John 17, where the focus was primarily on his own glory and the fact that that glory was given to him by the Father to accomplish the work of the redemptive plan that was laid out before the foundation of the world. In today's section of Jesus' prayer, we look at the part where Jesus actually has requests that he lifts up to the Father on behalf of his disciples. I mean, it's in these prayer requests that we can discover what our true needs as followers of Christ uh, really are. Maybe uh, like many of our children, we can be guilty of overstating our wants as needs. And sometimes, even worse, we overlook our needs altogether. So the title of today's sermon is The Needs of Christ's Disciples, and we'll look starting in John 17, verse 10. We'll read to the end of the chapter. John 17, 10, the needs of Christ's disciples. All mine are yours and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture may be fulfilled. But now... I'm coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they're not of the world just as I'm not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them In the truth, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. 
Oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know You, I know You, and these know that You have sent Me. I've made known to them Your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which You have loved Me may be in them and I in them. The needs of Christ's disciples. Remember, this is the true Lord's Prayer. That prayer that's that's recorded in Matthew chapter 6 could be more accurately called the disciples' prayer. And here in John 17, we have Jesus himself praying to the Father. Many have called this chapter, this prayer, the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Because it's in this way that Jesus goes to the Father representing his people. And we get a glimpse of that today in this section of Scripture. Jesus is going to the Father to intercede on behalf of his disciples, on behalf of those who had left everything to follow him. Jesus goes to the Father and asks the Father to meet these very specific needs that they have in their lives. It's interesting that this being the night before Jesus' arrest, Jesus is concerned about those whom he loved. He's concerned about how they're going to get along without him in the world. And what does he do with that concern? He takes it to the Father in prayer as he makes these requests. Now it's important for us to understand who this group of people is that Jesus was praying for. Remember, as Jesus walked the earth teaching and preaching and doing many miracles, many incredible things, there were vast crowds of people that came out to see what Jesus was doing. All the things that he was teaching and all the incredible signs and wonders that he had the power to do. But when it came time for those people to make a commitment to devote their own lives and sacrifice their own lives for following Jesus, the scripture tells us not many were willing. Many were willing to sit by and hear the message of Christ, but there weren't many who were willing to apply that message in their own context and leave their former life to actually follow him. So here at the end of Jesus' life, we're met with these 11 men, these disciples who had left everything to follow Jesus. It's interesting in John's gospel because he gives us a clear picture of why he recorded these truths about what Jesus did in the gospel of John. Look in John chapter 20, verse 31. In John chapter 20, verse 31, there's a little editorial note, and John tells us why he wrote the Gospel of John. John chapter 20, 31 says this, These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life In his name. You see, to follow Jesus, 
To be a disciple of Jesus is to believe in Christ and to have a life that's transformed through that faith. He said, I've not come just so you can get a ticket into heaven. I've come so that you can have new life, so that your life can be transformed and changed. And so the disciples of Christ, these who Jesus is praying for in John chapter 17, are those who have believed and those whose lives have been truly transformed and changed by Jesus Christ. So he comes and he prays for them. And the first request that Jesus wants, uh, makes on their behalf is that they understand this partnership that they have in the mission of God, the partnership they have in the mission of God. Look in verse 10. Jesus says, all mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. Now, many people would say and have this understanding, Lord, all that I have is yours. Like I didn't deserve these blessings. I didn't deserve this intellect or these abilities or these skills that you've given me. They're yours and you're, you've given them to me. But only one person could say, all that is yours is mine. And that was Jesus. Because remember, throughout the Gospel of John, John is making it clear, Jesus is God. Right? So when Jesus says to the Father, all that is yours is mine, that's a claim about the deity of Christ. That goes all the way back to John 1.1, where John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So Jesus is clearly praying in alignment with who he is as God, but he says, all that you, all that is yours is mine. It's interesting because as he thinks about this, all that is yours is mine, he's clearly thinking about the disciples. This ragtag group of normal people these ordinary guys, they're fishermen, they're brothers, they're blue-collar guys. One of them's a tax collector. God did not choose this extraordinary group of people to be these who would follow Christ. He chose these ordinary people. And maybe if we were Jesus praying a prayer like this, we'd say something like this, Father, look at what you gave me. Look at what you gave me. <laughs> right? Couldn't we have done better than this? But that's not what Jesus says. He says, Father, in your divine plan, here's who you have chosen to accomplish your mission through. These normal people, these disciples who had just given up everything to follow him. And Paul hits at this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, when he's talking to the church at Corinth, and he says, look, brothers, how many, were how many are wise among us? How many of us were strong and had this supernatural charisma? How many of us came from noble families? He says, not many of us 
We're in that category. We're just normal people. And brothers and sisters, as disciples of Christ, as followers of Jesus, I'm here to say today, God uses normal people. Jesus says in verse 10 of chapter 17, I am glorified in them. And so I don't know, maybe you walked into this church this morning and this walk, this path of discipleship that you've been on is a struggle for you. And maybe you've had thoughts of, I don't know how much longer I can continue to persevere in this because things are not working out like I thought they were working out. Here's some encouragement for you. Jesus is glorified in you. Jesus is glorified in his followers. And so he goes to the Lord, the the Father, and says, Father, help them. Help them to understand that it's in them that the mission will be accomplished. It's in them that they can be encouraged that the mission will be accomplished through their lives as they continue to walk. But he doesn't only pray for this understanding of their partnership in the mission. He prays for their protection. Look in verse 11. Jesus says, I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Jesus prays for their Protection. Jesus understands the context that the disciples are about to go in. It's a world that's full of hostility. It's a world that's opposed to the things of God and the mission of God. And so Jesus asked the Father to protect them, but he says, keep them in your name. In the Bible, when it speaks of the name of God, It's speaking of his character. It's speaking of all that he is. It reminds me of Proverbs chapter 18, verse 10. It says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. And so as we walk through the difficulties of this world and the dangers of this world, it's appropriate at times for us to stop and consider our Father, our God, as this strong tower, as this firm foundation that we can run into who He is and all that He is to provide protection for us in the midst of these dangers. It's in His character, His promises, and His faithfulness that our protection from evil is secure. Just as these were a bunch of nobodies, they were not many special people. They needed this special protection from the Father. So I think one of the dangers in the Christian life is that we can think we're beyond falling. We can think that maybe we've come to a point in our walk with Christ that we would never fall away that we would never fall victim to the temptations of the world like Judas did. How how did that work out for Peter? 
Remember, Peter said, no, Jesus, I'll never. We're not strong enough to make it on our own. We're not strong enough to face the difficulties of this world without protection. So here's maybe the question for us again this morning. How often are you praying for your spiritual protection? How often do you go to the Lord in the midst of these difficult difficulties in the, the world and say, God, I can't do this on my own and I'm running to you for help. I'm coming to you to give me the protection and the strength that I need to persevere. Parents, how often do we pray for the protection of our children? We pray for their physical protection. Maybe we even pray that God, would you help them to make right choices? But how many times do we go to the Lord and say, Father, keep our kids spiritually protect them from the evil one. This is a prayer that the Lord answers and this is a prayer that Jesus lifted up on behalf of his disciples. Father, protect them. But then Jesus prays for their preservation. Look in verse 13. He says, now I'm coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy Fulfilled in themselves. See, Jesus knows in order for the disciples to be able to accomplish the mission that Jesus had given them, go make disciples of all the nations, go proclaim the good news to the ends of the earth, that they needed to be preserved by the Father in a few areas. I can remember, as many of you probably can, growing up, going to my grandmother's house and when I would open the refrigerator there would be a mason jar of preserves right and what I came to understand is in that preservation process it's important to do something with the contents of the preserves or else they won't last right they won't make it but it's also important to do something with the container that they're in. That if that container isn't sealed just right and the outside air gets inside of that, you'll be left with a mess. Right? You'll be left with a bunch of ruined things. And it's the same way for us as followers of Christ. First, we have to have Christ in us. And we have to be changed from the inside out in order to be preserved for the mission. But then we need the Lord, we need the Father to do something on the outside that keeps the outside from coming in and defiling us in such a way that we would be useless for the mission of God. So in verse 13, it's interesting. The first thing that Jesus prays would be preserved in the disciples is their joy. Now hold on just a second. Out of everything that Jesus could have requested on behalf of the disciples, he said, Father, I pray that their joy would be full, that they would have this joy fulfilled in themselves that comes from me. Unfortunately, sometimes we can equate biblical discipleship with dullness. 
with stoicism. We become so religious that it's like we have a stick down our back. Right? And we're stiff and we don't have this joy. We don't have this overflow that comes from the measure of our heart. This is not some empty, gloomy existence that we're called to live. What we're called to live is a life of joy. Recently, I heard about two friends. One of them called the other. And upon answering the phone, the one friend, as we often say, asked the question, well, how are you doing? And his friend said, oh, I'm doing fine. In fact, I'm doing great. The friend said, well, you ought to tell your face that. <laughs> right? Have you ever had that opportunity to talk to somebody on the phone? And you can tell their demeanor without actually seeing them. Look, brothers and sisters, some of us need to smile. Some of us need to exude some joy that comes from the Lord. In order for our mission to be able to be complete, we have to have this secure joy that comes only through a changed life in Christ. Some of you may have heard of, of the Christian author C.S. Lewis in his autobiography where he outlines the process of him coming to faith in Christ. He entitles it, um, Surprised by Joy. And this is a surprise for those who are lost, for those who are outside the Christian faith. Because from outside looking in, that's a reason not to come to Christ. Because the thought is this, well, if you come to Christ, your life is pretty much over. Now you have to observe this strict standard of rules and you have to walk around like some robot that doesn't have any joy and doesn't have any fun. And look, sometimes we as Christians, we give them a good reason to think that because there's not much joy that's coming in our lives. But here's the thing about this joy that Jesus is praying on behalf of the disciples that the Father would give them. It's, it's, it's not connected to, to human experiences. It's a joy that's beyond the experiences of this life. So it lasts. So it's secure and it perseveres through difficult times. So we ask for joy. Then in verse 14, they need this joy. Why? I've given them your word and the world hated them. Sometimes we do a disservice in a in evangelism, we tell people, come to faith in Christ. Repent of your sins. Believe the gospel. We don't tell them this part, do we? And the world will hate you. But this is what Jesus says. He says, I came to them. I gave them my word. They believed this message of who I was and what I was to accomplish on the cross. They left everything and how did the world respond to them? The world responded with hatred toward them. The world despised them for it. So they need this joy because in the face of a world that is despising Christianity, we don't have to look around hard to see that that's going on in our current 
culture, we have to be secure that God is going to keep us and He's going to preserve us. But we have to know the world's going to hate us. And I'll just kind of look up here now because there's lots of students and teenagers and kids. But really, it's for all of us. If you follow Jesus Christ, if you lay aside the things of this world and the thinking of this world for a life devoted to Jesus, you will not be liked. You will not be accepted by the world. And if you try to straddle this fence of being accepted by the world and living for Jesus, you will fail. You will fall victim to that. That's not the way Christ has intended us to live. And so he says the world's going to hate you, but Jesus prays that the Father would keep them. Look in verse 15 and 16. It's interesting because Jesus says to the Father, verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. We're to be in the world, but not of the world. Right? Some of us have fallen off of our path of discipleship because there's no discernible difference between our lives and the life of everybody in the world. We've become like the world. I heard it like this recently. It's good for the boat to be in the water. It's not good for water to be in the boat. We're to be in the world, but the world's not supposed to be in us. And unfortunately, some of us, for the sake of peace and love and acceptance and tolerance and all of these things, we've become no different than what we see in the culture. On the other hand, Jesus says, but Father, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world. Others of us have gone to the other extreme, and we've said this, you know what? Things are so bad in the culture. There's so much evil in the world. I'm just going to shut it down. I'm just going to lock the doors, close the windows, live my little existence and what I think is safe and secure and all of that. And guess what? If we do that, the mission of God is not going to go forward in our lives. Recently, my wife and I, Kristen, were able to go to Greece. We went to central Greece, and in central Greece, there's this place called Meteora. It's a place that in 14th and 15th centuries, they built these monasteries on these cliffs. So it's a beautiful area, these monks, and there's a number of these monasteries way up away from everything. As we're touring, the tour guide says, well, this this here is a convent. So it got me thinking, uh, maybe some of you are like me. Our youngest child is a little girl named Nora. She's eight years old. And one of the things I haven't been able to navigate yet as a dad is this truth that someday Nora's going to want to marry somebody. So when they told me about this opportunity, (laughs) I asked Kristen, how do we sign Nora up? 
Christian, this is not the way the Lord's intended us to live. Up in some buildings on cliffs so that we can get away from the world. There is a job for us to do as Christians that only we can do. If we leave the world, nobody else can do the job of proclaiming Christ and being Christ in our schools and in our jobs and in our families and in our neighborhoods and wherever we go and wherever the Lord sends us, this is what He's called us to do. The work of Christ that no other can do. How is it that we're going to be preserved in this? How is it that we can have boldness in the midst of an evil world that He's called us to? Well, the answer is found in verse 17. Jesus' request to the Father for His disciples. He says this, Sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. You see, the Scriptures, the Word of God, is used by the grace of God through the Spirit of God to give us this protection, to give us this preservation. It's important for us then, if we're to stand in the midst of an evil world as followers of Christ who don't back down, who don't walk away from our calling to Jesus to understand that the way we stand firm, the way we find joy, the way we persevere is found in a steady diet of God's Word in our lives. Our oldest son, sorry, I got lots of stories today about family. Our oldest son, Caleb, when he was a baby, was on the borderline of what the doctors called failure to thrive. In other words, he wasn't getting enough nutrients to sustain his life. So some of these gray hairs had to do with the fact that we were concerned as parents. Caleb has to eat. He has to get these nutrients. And some of you may have had this uh, with your children where you do everything possible to get your kids to eat. You dance on one leg. You, you do airplane noises. Right? Look, you, in order for children to grow, they have to eat. Christian, in order for you to be sanctified by God, you have to eat. It's no wonder that so many of us in the face of a culture like ours cower away or fall short of the mission because we're spiritually malnourished. We don't have the food of God, the Word of God, through the Spirit of God giving us strength. And so brother or sister, mom or dad, student here today, when you enter your workplaces and your schools and your communities and your sports teams and wherever you go and it's hard and you don't know if you can make it and you don't know how you're going to persevere, understand that you can't do it alone. You need to be prayerful. We need to be prayerful that the Lord would do this work of preserving, but then we should also make sure that we're getting a steady diet of God's Word 
in our lives that He may sanctify us by His Word. Let's close with verse 18. Jesus says, As you sent me into the world, I have sent them. It reminds me of Isaiah chapter 6. Do you remember when Isaiah had this picture of the Lord and he was high and lifted up? The Bible says the train of his robe filled the temple. In other words, Isaiah got a glimpse of the glory of God. So Isaiah falls to his face. He's in some way speechless. He's confronted with his own sinfulness. God reaches out through an angel and touches him cleanses him. And then the Lord asks, who shall I send? Who shall go for us? And Isaiah says, here am I, Lord, send me. Sometimes we read a verse like this, verse 18, where Jesus says, I've sent them into the world. And what we're tempted to think of is, yeah, Jesus sends the missionaries. Jesus sends the pastors. We should pray for them. No, we are all the sent of God. We are all the sent out ones of Jesus to proclaim this message of hope in Christ, sanctification in His Spirit, and joy that can be found in Him. Let's pray even now that the Lord would protect and preserve us for this mission He's given us. Lord God, thank you that you would call weak and frail, needy people like us. Number one, that you would save us. Lord, we know that that's a gift of your grace. There's nothing that we could do to earn it. But Lord, not only that we get to go to heaven, not only that our sins could be forgiven, but that in the here and now, we have a purpose. We have a mission and a job to go into the world and to make a difference, to be this salt and light, to be um, proclaimers, not only through our words, but even through our lives, that Jesus is good and that Jesus saves sinners and there's joy and there's true life in Him. Lord, we praise You for that. And we want to say, forgive us of allowing the world to contaminate us. Lord, we know in the book of James, it says, true and undefiled religion is taking care of orphans and widows and keeping oneself unstained from the world. So we confess that the world has stained us and we've allowed that. So we repent and we want to be holy. Thank you that you forgive us and that once again you wash us clean. But we ask that you would preserve us for this mission, that you would protect us in the midst of hostility, that you would give us joy, Lord, that perseveres through difficult things and an evil culture. Lord, I would pray for one here today that maybe they're like those crowds of people that wanted to hear the things of Christ or were intrigued, 
by some of the stories about Jesus, but they've never bowed the knee to the Lordship of Christ. They've never repented of their sins and submitted their lives to the Lordship of who Christ is for them. But I pray today that they would do that, that they would repent, that they would confess their sins. Lord, that they would understand that their only hope for true life is in Jesus. Lord, thank you for your word. Plant it deep in us, that it would shape us and fashion us for your honor and glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.